0: Let me introduce Matt. I said a few words last night about Ann, and I already introduced the two of them as a unit. So, just a few words this morning about Matt. Matt, um, I thought about how to describe him, and I think the best way is to describe Matt as a man um, in utter submission to the Word of God. And I find that to be very inspiring and um, a great encouragement. I know when I invite him up here to speak to you that he is um, going to share opinions and views, I'm sure, but always under the authority of Scripture to not find first what he thinks, but to seek out the will of God and to share that with us. And I couldn't be more excited to invite Matt to come up here and speak. Matt Kennedy. Oh, that's, uh, that's very humbling. Hope I move up to that, we'll see. Um, I, I am uh, truly honored that uh, when Nick uh, considered who he might invite to speak um, on failure uh, that he chose us. <laughs> we have great knowledge about this topic and I don't think it's boasting to you say that few others of Nick's acquaintance have such in-depth first-hand experience, so. You're listening to an expert on failure. Uh, Anne, yesterday, launched right in uh, by uh, failing to define failure. She, I mean, she did say, she asked at the beginning of her talk, What is failure? but then she just went on and gave you a bunch of examples and didn't actually define it, didn't ever circle back to answer her question. And I suppose right now, um, I'm giving yet another example of failure, since by all accounts, husbands are not supposed to publicly point out. The failings of of their wives. So here in in the first minute, I've managed to do just that. So what is failure? Um, I suppose one definition we might give is not achieving what you set out to achieve. Uh, It's important not to simply say failure is not meeting a mark or a standard. Because there are all sorts of marks that we could care less about meeting. If I've, well, I have. I've failed to win a single eating contest in my life. I've never done that. I've never eaten the most hot dogs or jalapenos or donuts in 10 minutes. And I'm just fine with that. I can, I can sleep well at night. I'm not bothered by it at all. I've never tried to do it. I don't want to do it. If, on the other hand, I had trained for years to eat more hot dogs in 10 minutes than any other eating athlete, can you call a hot dog eater an eating athlete, if I train to, to do that, then perhaps I'd be devastated. It's, it's really when you want something, when you want to be something, when you want to achieve something, that and you put forth your efforts, all your effort, to do it, and then you find that you've not met the mark, that your efforts or, and this is where it really strikes deep, you haven't been sufficient, that's that's where the sting comes in. It is interesting that that in these strivings that are close to our hearts, we tend, and maybe I should just speak to myself, uh, I tend to identify myself, my, my being, my essence. It's not just that I want to achieve this thing, whatever it might be. This thing becomes who I am, and if I don't achieve it, I'm rocked back because I've been wrong about myself. I'm not really that kind of person. As a very new Christian, I was hired probably way too soon uh, to be a youth minister. Uh, The rector of the congregation, who became my mentor... Uh, thought I was the bee's knees. I was the greatest thing ever. Um, my conversion, one of the reasons he thought that is because my, my conversion involved a lot of reading uh, of Christian, Christian writers. Um, I, I, my conversion was kind of an intellectual conversion. Uh, so when I finally did bend the knee to, to Jesus, my head was you know, full of, of theological truths. And my rector was incredibly impressed with me. That made two of us. <laughs> As the idea of becoming a pastor grew in my mind, um, um, there were, because I I do believe in Jesus, uh, there were some good motivations there, right motivations. I wanted to preach the gospel. I wanted to see God change people's lives through the gospel. But there was also the idea that I was a theological star ascendant. I was told, and I believed it, that I had the potential to have the kind of pivotal ministry that a guy like John Yates had. Has. He's retired, but still has. John Yates, if you don't know who he was, he built built the Falls Church into one of the largest and most theologically sound and influential Anglican churches in North America. And when I finally made it to seminary, I had the opportunity to to intern under him um, and learn under him. And I remember sitting in church and surveying... The the packed out uh, sanctuary and hearing him preach, and and saying to myself, You know, one day, one day I'll have a church just like this. And the respect that, that he has. And I'll preach the gospel to a packed sanctuary with people eager to hear every word that pours forth from my mouth. That's just who I am. It was a bit of a letdown after graduating from Samaria to find that there were so few places to choose from. In the summer of 2002, uh, one year into our marriage with Anne one month pregnant, uh, we landed in Binghamton, New York, a church of 47, mostly aging people, in a dying, then dying, kind of revived since then, but a dying Rust Belt town. And I remember telling my senior warden, uh, who's still with us, who still works with us, I told him, in two years, give me two years, this building will be packed out. We'll have 200 people attending, and we'll need to add, to add space. I was thinking big, you know, casting a vision, all that kind of stuff. My, my senior warden's a quiet man, he's serious, wizened. he's an electrician by trade. Uh, he'd grown up a good shepherd, and his parents had grown up a good shepherd, and his grandparents had grown up a good shepherd, and when I told him this, he kind of raised his eyebrows And he said, well, that would be unexpected. (laughs) God, said my 30-year-old self, is the God of the unexpected. (laughs) I answered, and indeed he is. I won't go into all that happened in the subsequent years A Good Shepherd, uh, leaving the Episcopal Church, losing our building and all of that. Let me just say that uh, 10 years ago, God brought us to a new building that seats 400 people. We've never filled one-fourth of it. Every Sunday I look out at swaths of empty pews and despair. Now I know, you, you can tell. you're going to tell me, anyone would tell me, that ministry is not about numbers. I know that. And I've never resorted to gimmicks or to any church growth tricks to pull them in. I just don't do that. No smoke machines or light shows. But but building a large church is one of the measures of success that I have wrongly, but I have embraced and secretly longed for. I know I should want to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten but I would like to preach the gospel to a big church, die, and be forgotten. (laughs) It turns out, after everything's said and done, that I am not the man I believe myself to be. Now, I see some people who are training for ministry here. Uh, I don't see too many actual ministers here, but I, I don't think I'm describing an experience that is exclusive to my profession. I've always wanted to be this. I've tried to do this. And yet I've not done it. I failed. It's devastating not to be. So what do you do when you discover this? I'm still discovering this, so perhaps I'm not the best person to answer that question. But I I think counterintuitively that Solomon the man whose reputation for success echoes down the centuries might help us uh, discuss this question. Now, I want to warn you before we go here. If you have your Bible, go to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I want to warn you, at the end of this talk, you might be depressed. That's just the way Ecclesiastes works. Um, it's not my fault. That's, <laughs> just, um, but I, I want you to hold on and come back to the next talk because I hope to make you feel better in the second one. Um, there's, there's some dispute as to whether Solomon actually wrote uh, Ecclesiastes, I'm satisfied that he did, and I'll be happy to talk with you uh, about that afterwards if you think otherwise. But for now, let's keep calm and carry on and just assume that Solomon, uh, Solomon wrote, uh, wrote Ecclesiastes um, and that he wrote Ecclesiastes toward the end of his life. Comparing Ecclesiastes with Proverbs, which he probably wrote toward the early part of his, of his kingship, had Solomon followed his own counsel In Proverbs, he probably would not have had to write Ecclesiastes. So I thank God that he wrote both. But Ecclesiastes seems to be, oh, wow, I really didn't do the Proverbs thing. Solomon is is one of David's sons. He's David's heir. Uh, He built the first great temple in Jerusalem. Um, Early in his reign, God came to him and said, ask me for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And you know the story, Solomon, even then, was fairly wise because he asked the Lord to give him wisdom so that he could lead the people well. And God was very pleased with that. So he said, since you've asked for wisdom and not wealth or fame or power, I'm going to give you wisdom and I'm going to give you those those other things as well. And he did. But as with every good gift God gives, even the wisest among us are capable of misusing it. God gave Solomon a subtle and discerning mind, equipped not just to attain knowledge, but to apply it so that he might achieve whatever he desires. That's what wisdom is, actually. But at some crucial point in his life, unlike his father David, Solomon determined that that Yahweh would not be that thing. that for Solomon to live would not be Yahweh and to die would be the greatest tragedy ever. That being the case, he asked himself, how should I live in these few years under the sun? In this, How should I live in this world and find joy and contentment and satisfaction? Solomon, as an older man, having asked that question and largely answered it, takes up his pen in Ecclesiastes to record his conclusions. We're going to focus on chapter 2, but I, I commend the entire book to you. so if you want to see everything, because I read the whole book, but we're going to just focus in on chapter 2 because I think, I think his findings are concentrated there. So he starts off here in verse 1, Solomon, and he says, "'I said in my heart, "'Come now, uh, I will test you with pleasure.'" Enjoy yourself. But behold, he says, this also was vanity. Now, this is anticlimactic. If I were Solomon's sermon uh, helper, I would say, you need to build in a narrative arc here. You don't want to tell us where you're going in the beginning. But he does. He says, right from the beginning, he tells us where he's going to end. Uh, he tells us that the end of his, is his search right there in verse 1. Like those sermons. I don't know if you've heard them, but like those sermons where you get an outline and you're told the conclusion from the very beginning, and you still have to endure 40 or 50 minutes until you, till you get there. Um, um, that's kind of what it's like. Um, and yet this isn't quite so mind-numbing. Consider what he said, and consider who's saying it. I mean, have you ever said to yourself, uh, if I could just earn enough money not to worry about bills, then I'd be able to enjoy life? Or if only I could attain this this position of of honor or respect, uh, then I'd be content. Or if only I had the money and the authority and the freedom I needed to spend my days uh, doing what I most like to do, then I'd be satisfied. Solomon has unlimited wealth, he's not worried about paying his bills, he has supreme authority. There's nothing that he wants that he cannot have. From that vantage point, he decides to test his heart. Now, when we say heart, we we mean our emotions, usually. You follow your heart, you're talking about your emotions when you say that. You shouldn't do that, by the way. Uh, but, but But the ancient person, for the ancient person, the heart is the seat of the whole person. It's who you are. We might use soul, maybe, I guess. Solomon sets himself to a test. I'm going to engage in all the pleasures on offer under the sun and test, let's observe myself to see what's the benefit of this thing. In chapter 3, we're not going to look at it, but in chapter 3, Solomon observes that God has set eternity into the heart of men and women. And in verse 1, he tells us that he's setting out to test his heart. It's not just, is this thing entertaining? Is this thing beautiful? Is this thing, you know, satisfying in a kind of limited way? But, but can it meet the need of the eternity that God set in the heart? That's his question. And by the word pleasure, don't just think here of, of physical pleasures. He does, as we're going to see. He tries out sex and he tries out alcohol. But also learning building, planting, cultivating the higher pleasures of the mind and of worthy achievement. And he, he, Solomon, who had the power, authority, and wealth to try these things out to the maximum, he tells us before going any further that it's all vanity. Vanity. He's not talking about that wooden thing that women look at. He's not talking about the vanity piece of furniture. He's not talking about the vanity that we think of when we think of someone who really loves himself or herself, the the appearance. Vanity here could be translated vapor. How long does vapor last? What can you do with vapor? Can you store vapor up? Does vapor in any way nourish you? It's here and then it's gone. Leaving nothing behind. That's what Solomon means by vanity. It may as well have never been. Verse 2, Solomon says, I, I said of laughter, it's mad. And a pleasure, what use is it? Uh, I, I grew up in the, the 80s and 90s and uh, it's 7 p.m. That was my favorite time of the day because that was prime time and everyone was glued to the television uh, watching the weeknight sitcoms. I'm not sure if that's still a thing or not because I don't watch TV as much, but that was a thing when I was growing up. Uh, My family sat in front of the TV till around uh, 10 o'clock at night and we went to bed, um, except when we were asleep, the TV was never really off in our household. We had a TV in every room and one was always on or all of them were on sometimes constant flow of, if not laughter, uh, certainly diversion. One need not think too deeply about anything in my house growing up because you had all that kind of noise just blaring. I think maybe phones have taken the place of televisions now. Or maybe we just double up and do both. We look at our phones and watch TV. I don't know. By laughter here, Solomon... Does mean, of course, things that make him laugh, mer- merriment. Uh, but he also, I think, more, more fully, broadly, means diversion, entertainment. He, he sought to occupy, preoccupy, his mind, forget his troubles. A farmer really can't do that, can he? Because he's got to, he's got to, he's got to work. Labor can't do this. He's got to concentrate on his work. They have got to eat have got to tend to their toil, but it, it, Solomon could do that. <laughs> Solomon was able to fill his life with diversion, and he says, it took me from my right mind. Madness. Escaping the cares of the world through laughter ended, he says, in madness, just as the, the wider pursuit of pleasure ended in vanity. So that didn't quite work. Let's see. Verse 3. So I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now notice the parameters there. During the few days of their life. There is an assumption at work here, at least in the young, or at least in the Solomon recounting his younger way of thinking. There is an assumption here, unshared by his father David, and one that I think Solomon ultimately, as author of Ecclesiastes, rejects, but that a younger man he embraced. And that assumption is that we can't know whether or not the soul goes on after death. Uh, You and I, standing downstream from completed revelation, we have the New Testament, we have the prophets, we have all of them, uh, we know much more about what happens. But Solomon was upstream, further upstream. And while he could have consulted the Psalms and and believed what his dad wrote, or simply turned to Exodus 3, where Yahweh, speaking to Moses, calls himself the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of the living, not the dead, at this point, well, it seems... He believed, what happens tomorrow or when you die, no one can really do really know. I think that's what he means by life under the sun. So, what should we do? Wine. Let's let's drink wine. Now, you might uh, want to note the way that Solomon drank wine. He says, "My heart's still guiding you with wisdom." Solomon is not a hedonist. The hedonist is heedless. If it feels good for the hedonist to, to drink one shot of whiskey, he's going to drink five shots of whiskey, and then ten shots of whiskey, he's just going to go full bore and you know, kind of slide into the grave headfirst and, and die. Uh, Solomon did seem experience uh, experiment with, with the hedonist approach. He calls it folly, you can see it there, but in a circumspect way to, to kind of test his heart with it. But he also drank wine guided by wisdom. Like the Epicurean, uh, unlike the, the, the hedonists, the Epicureans were looking for the most exquisite experience possible. So they would say, let me drink just enough wine to get that really good buzz, but not so much to make me drunk and hungover. That's, there's a, there, that's where I want to hit, right there. And so it seemed like Solomon was maybe an early Epicurean. Um, Ann and I uh, drink cardboard bordeaux usually. Um, every once in a while, uh, that's a box wine. Um, every, every once in a while, we'll splurge on a $20 bottle of wine and we'll say, wouldn't it be nice if we had good wine regularly? Solomon had the best wine possible and curbed his attitude or at- appetite so that he gained from it the most pleasurable experience possible from it. Didn't work. Verse 4 and 5 and 6. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and plants and uh, and planted in them all kinds of fruit. I made myself pools from uh, which to water the forest of growing trees. Notice, by the way, if you have your text open, notice how many times Solomon repeats that word myself, for myself, for myself. He's, he's not, he, he does help his people, but been building some of these things, but he's really looking for that, how to answer the eternity in his heart. Um, Ann and I bought a house in, in 2016, and we'd always lived in rectories before, which meant, um, and I didn't fully take into consideration how important this was, which meant that other people come and fix things when, when, when things break. Uh, we, we now know that uh, houses cost a lot of money and they require skill, and I don't have either of those things, so uh, that's a problem. But Solomon didn't have any of that to worry about. What he wanted to build, he built. Like all great rulers, he left his mark in magnificent structures. The temple alone is worthy of of eternal memory, Uh, but there's more here than the desire to leave an architectural signature, to say I was here. Solomon is actually doing something good. We shouldn't This is not like the pursuit of simple physical pleasure. is doing something that you and I are made to do and that we seek to do in all of our chosen vocations. He's he's devoting the full energies of his mind and heart to some great task, to build something, to plant something. The historian who who strives to write the definitive account of of World War II. The, The writer endeavoring to write the great novel. The mother and father seeking to raise polite, educated, honorable, and happy adults. The teacher cultivating curious minds. The pastor uh, building a, a biblically sound church. The painter working to capture truth and goodness and beauty on his canvas or her canvas. The manager retraining and rearranging and streamlining the office and so that everything runs efficiently. All of these strivings are very good because they tap into that essential aspect of our humanity. Uh, we build and create because we're made in God's image, and he's the creator. Notice all the Edenic illusions here. The irrigated garden, the variety of trees, the fruit, the forests. Now, the difference between uh, my building and planting and my vocation and maybe yours as, as well is, is, that, is that Solomon achieved what he set out to do. He actually completed the building. He planted the garden and brought it to fruition. The end toward which most of us work all of our lives, the goal that we set for ourselves and when we fail to reach it, brings us to the end of our days in frustration and despair. Solomon managed to fulfill, to to do, to accomplish, to achieve. We should ask ourselves, looking at this, what if I did manage to have the large church that I want or have the whatever it is that you most strive to attain? What would, what would be the result of that? What then? Well, Solomon is going to have an answer for you in a minute. He says, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and, and the treasure of, the, of kings and provinces. Slavery, of course, in the, in the ancient Near East, and especially under Levitical law, uh, bore little resemblance to the, to the race-based chattel slavery in North America, leading up to the Civil War. Um, so it's not the same thing. Uh, have you ever watched Downton Abbey? H. on. yeah, so... Uh, there's an out upstairs staff and there's a downstairs staff and uh, the upstairs staff is on top of the heap and the downstairs staff is the, is the or the, you know, the lower type jobs. But, uh, but upstairs and downstairs, they have one job. What's the job? Make the Granthams comfortable. Make them, make their life smooth and Easy. And Lord Grantham would want to hire the right chefs, the right butlers, the right scullery maids, so that the family would have nothing at all in their lives to worry about, and they could just, you know, do what they wanted to do. By the way, anyone remember the Brady Bunch? Is that, yeah. Don't you, wouldn't it be nice to have an Alice? Um, Alice, like she lives, like in this apartment right off the kitchen, right? So I don't know what Mrs. Brady did. She just came down, and breakfast was ready, and the house was clean, and uh, all the kids were set to go. So anyway, Alice uh, made everything run, run smoothly for the, for the Bradys. Solomon boasts here that whatever was necessary for his day-to-day comfort, he had the staff for it. He never had to lift a finger. Never had to cook or clean anything. All the wearying necessities of life that we sometimes wish, only I could just have to worry about this. All the wearying necessities of life were lifted from his shoulders so he could devote himself to his pursuit of pleasure. He was able to purchase the very best staff because, as he says here, he amassed herds and flocks and silver and gold. Amassing wealth is one of those things that might begin as a prelude to something else. I want lots of money so I can travel or afford these luxuries, but it can, if you're not careful, uh, become an end in itself. So that amassing wealth becomes the pleasure that you pursue. Getting more of it than your friends or or your colleagues can become a way of proving your worth. So that you're never really satisfied until you have more of it than anyone else. Solomon had more than anyone else. I got singers, he says, both men and women. Solomon, Solomon of course, couldn't download music from Spotify and no CDs or tapes. Not even 8-track cassettes. They were even around there, there back then. But for Solomon, um, this wasn't a problem. He surrounded himself with music. Now, he didn't just hire the local band. And there's some good local bands around, I'm sure. But his choir would have been comprised of the best of the best that Israel and probably other nations had to offer. His life was bathed in harmony. Music, like every form of art, has the power to lift and move the soul. It has the power to break your heart and put it back together again. It can stir up courage, can awaken compassion, heighten desire. Not that Solomon needed any help in that last regard, as the next line tells us. And many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. Indeed, uh, First Kings tells us that Solomon had three hundred concubines to supplement his collection of 700 wives. That's a thousand women. I have one wife. And I, that's, <laughs> that's enough. Um, so I love, I mean, you, I didn't mean don't, I'll be in trouble for that later. Um, so, uh, God in Deuteronomy 17 commands kings of Israel not to gather too many wives or many wives, and, and Solomon's life is an illustration of The wisdom behind that command, uh, he married foreign wives, mostly for political gain, um, and these women led his heart astray to other gods. Wives, of course, are not concubines. In the Near East, kings married, took wives for political reasons, to form an alliance of some kind. His 700 wives testified to the breadth of his political power. Concubines, however, concubines are for Uh, sexual play. Solomon Solomon amassed 300 of them. No man in his day ever came close to experiencing what he experienced in that regard. I, I suppose people today might have a closer approximation of it than anyone in his day did. Phones and computer screens... Uh, set an unlimited assortment of women or men before your eyes and sexual satisfaction has become in our culture synonymous with the good life with flourishing yeah. you, you can't flourish many believe unless you express yourself sexually in, in the way that you would like and so you would think it's kind of you would think that with 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 pornography of any kind at our our fingertips and the classical social barriers restricting fornication and adultery and homosexuality all all but destroyed, you would think that we would be the most fulfilled and satisfied and flourishing and content people ever, aren't we? See, ours is a civilization of of Solomons. Each man and each woman with hundreds of virtual concubines should we choose. Now, of course, sex is a good and wonderful thing within its proper boundary of marriage. But Solomon was not any more concerned with those boundaries than the modern person. But can 300 concubines bear the weight of a soul? Well, Solomon answers his question again in verses 9 through 11. It It makes depressing reading. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. In other words, the the limited pleasure he felt, that was the reward of it. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. There's really little more to say. Of course, Psalm doesn't stop there. He 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 has many more chapters to go. But that is his depressing conclusion. Just, just to round out this chapter, in verses 12 through 17, Solomon turns to the pursuit of wisdom. The, the pursuit that, that Plato said would give men the highest satisfaction. Um, Solomon, of course, doesn't mean wisdom as in the Proverbs, which is, begins with the fear of God that somebody's talking about. But wisdom in the sense of discerning how to live a good life. Uh, my dad uh, recently became a Christian, but before that he had immersed himself in all of the self-help Motivational literature he could find, trying to figure out how to live the good life here and now under the sun. All the most sage advice about how to live and get the most out of life and not make foolish and painful decisions. But as he grew older and mortality raised its ugly head, I think my dad began to realize what Solomon says that he realized no matter how many good choices you make, you're going to die. The fool who makes all the bad choices and the wise man who makes all the good choices meet the same ends. Now, it's better to be wise than a fool. He says that. If you're going to live, you might as well make the the best of it. But in the end, there's no difference since both the fool and the wise man die. In verses 18 through 21... I think the thought of mortality that Jesus kind of raised there uh, turns Solomon back to all the wealth he's worked so hard to amass and the herds and the flocks and all the rest. And he realizes, I can't take it with me. And the person I leave it to may squander it all my hard work. And so, again, it's all, it's all vapor. It's all vapor. What has man, verse 22 and 23, what has man from all the toil and striving of the heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart doesn't rest. So uh, this also is vanity. So where does this leave Solomon? How, how would he have you live? He's discovered all these things. How would he have you live since as he's discovered these things are true? He answers that question in verses 24 through 26. There's nothing better, He says, for a person that that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil, this also I saw is from the hand of God. There's a mention of God there. For apart from Him, God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases Him, for the, to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, He's given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give one to one who pleases God. This also is vanity. And it's striving after the wind. Now, what does Solomon mean here? Solomon means something like, there's nothing under the sun, nothing on this earth and of this earth that corresponds to the eternity that God has set in your heart. And it's folly, it's, it's foolishness to think that experiencing this pleasure or that achievement, however good, will finally be the thing that satisfies. It won't. But if you know that, and God reveals that to those who please him, if you know that, you can enjoy things for what they are and in the right measure. Eat your meals and enjoy them. Drink your wine and enjoy it. Go to your work, work hard. And if you fail at some great task or you don't gain all that you had hoped for, know that even if you had succeeded, it wouldn't satisfy you. So let it go. Cheerful, isn't it? It Doesn't make you happy? You're going to go out leaping and dancing and see. At this point, you might be asking, "How on earth is this helpful?" I'm more depressed now than when you started talking. Yeah. I think God, through Solomon, gives you and me one very large piece of a two piece puzzle. If you have little kids, you probably have two piece puzzles. Easy to do. This is one piece of a two piece puzzle. As far as the work of our hands goes on this earth and the task we set ourselves to, To the extent we see in them our hope, our peace, our satisfaction, we've left the path of wisdom. And it's when we set our hearts on them, the full weight of our souls, that they bring us the most heartbreak. Because they cannot do for us what we want them to do. This is good to know. Now, there is a piece of the puzzle left dangling. The one that we'll come to in the next talk. And I'll just just, uh, tease it with a question. Why has God set eternity into our hearts when nothing on earth corresponds to it? Putting that piece in its place, I think we'll find a fuller and far more cheerful answer and a satisfying one to the failure and frustration of life under the sun. Thank you.